You're listening to The Gould Standard. This is episode 32, Scaling the Heights with Gould's Wall. Hello, everybody. I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. Once again, we're here to bring you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If film, books, dance, music, opera, poetry, visual art, theater, novels, or design are what put the spring in your step and elevate you to higher places, you have come to the right location, my friends. But first, while you're stopping by under our celebrated neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more simply scintillating sounds, words, and images, we'd love you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. Now, while you're there, you will undoubtedly notice a floating, hovering, glowing, pulsating donate button. That's because we are a registered Canadian charity, and we deeply appreciate your generous gifts and donations. Your support helps us continue our work. Now, today we're bringing you the first in a series of presentations to mark 2022, the year that Glenn Gould would have turned 90. We'll be exploring the enduring, fascinating, provoking, and endlessly inspiring legacy of the artist who was our namesake here at the Gould Standard. Well, what better way to kick off Glenn Gould at 90 than with the world premiere of an exciting, one might even say death-defying new opera in which the figure of Gould hovers, one might say, over the entire drama. The work is Gould's Wall, and it is a production of Toronto's Tapestry Opera. It will be given its world premiere at Toronto's Royal Conservatory of Music this August the 4th through 12th, and we hope that any of you who can get to Toronto will take the opportunity to see it. Now, we're very lucky today to have the creative team behind this daring work with us. First, we have Brian Current, the composer, Liza Balkin, the librettist, Philip Aiken, who directs the production, and Michael Hidetoshi Mori, artistic director of Tapestry Opera. Welcome all. I'd like to start with you, Brian. You are the composer, and I'm assuming that the original inspiration for this work began in your fevered mind. What was it about Gould as a figure that you wanted to capture in operatic form? And also, where did the idea of incorporating the wall as a, uh, as a central symbol originate with you? I'm very fortunate to be on faculty of the Glenn Gould School, which is part of the Royal Conservatory here in Toronto. And students in their 20s come from all around the world to learn at the Glenn Gould School. And so we put together concerts of contemporary music. And so I come into the Royal Conservatory once a week. And every time I pass this magnificent wall in the atrium, 
So in 2009, they redid the building, but they kept the historic facade of the historic building. But now it's an inner wall on the atrium of the new building. And so every time I would go by there, I, I would think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have some kind of piece where singers were going up and down the wall and coming out of the windows and the orchestra was down on the ground with the audience and the audience was up on balconies and it was really exciting. And there's a cafe down there too. And for years, there's been artists, painters, writers that hang around there. And we'd all just talk about, you know, how cool that would be to have this piece on the wall. And Liza was um, working with students at the Glenn Gould School and we started chatting about what could possibly take place here. And we got excited about different ideas and we brought in Michael Mori of Tapestry and we started chatting about different ideas and we came up with the namesake of the Glenn Gould School, Glenn Gould. What if he was climbing around along the wall or a Glenn Gould-like artist and the ups and downs of the climb were the ups and downs of his artistic journey? Because all the students that come from around the world, they are trying to do what Glenn Gould managed to do, which is to achieve mastery in his art. And that is no easy feat. And that is what this piece is all about. Fantastic. Liza, at what stage did you become connected with this work and the idea of the ascent along the wall? How did that imagery strike you as, as something that had dramatic and literary possibilities for this work? Brian Kurtz and I were having coffee in the atrium, and I think that Brian had been speaking to a few people about some potential ideas for this. And then one day I just um, started to talk about the wall itself and what emanates from the wall, what emanates from that building, the music, the art, creation, uh, rigor. And that was sort of the germ of uh, Brian and I talking about this piece. And again, it's the Glenn Gould School. And so Glenn's presence is so vibrant in every corner of that building. And as we were talking, it, it occurred to me that what was of interest, especially interest to me, was, yes, Glenn Gould is a presence. And so there is the character of Glenn in the piece who is real. You could call him a ghost, but he's 100% present. However, what the piece enters into is an investigation of creation and art and uh, process and practice. And so I introduced the idea of a young, very talented artist, a woman who is uh, there, who, who wants to achieve, whose icon is uh, Mr. Gould, and who wants to achieve excellence in her art and her practice and her own voice, to find her own voice. And so we started to think about the idea of of climbing the wall as an analogy. So the bricks become what? Are the bricks the, the keys in a piano? Um, are the bricks just foundation? Are they art? Their history? Uh, so it becomes less linear in a way. It's uh, a bit of a, it's a metaphor. The wall is a metaphor. And, and again, as I've said, what emanates from the building and the wall and behind the wall constantly with practicing. We have a young artist who journeys, climbs the wall, and encounters Glenn through it. And it's really all about the symbiosis between a young, talented artist and what they can learn, what they want to learn, what they do learn about the icon and therefore about themselves and their own art through this journey. Mm -hmm. And so that it, we worked on it for a number of, a number of years, uh, in different variations and Lord knows there's so much written about Mr. Gould, 
uh, that I went down an incredibly delicious rabbit hole as part of the process. <laughs> yes. And then finding some of the juiciest, most vibrant bits of storytelling for this particular kind of meditation. It's not a linear story. It's more of like a, a meditation in a way. One of the conceits of the piece was actually using uh, Glenn Gould's words to create much of the text for both the climber and Mr. Gould and the other beings that are encountered through the windows. So his own words are very much an intrinsic part of, of the piece. That's actually fascinating. And it, it was something I wanted to ask you about, because when you confront Glenn Gould, the writer, it's a very different persona than Glenn Gould, the, the performing musician. He is quixotic in some ways. He makes huge leaps, if, you know, which he expects you to follow in a way that I sometimes associate with Marshall McLuhan, for example. He has a very quirky sense of humor that kind of weaves into almost everything. But you sense that there is a profound set of ideas at work, sometimes very loosely bound together, and also just a tremendous sense of idealism about the power of art, the elevation that comes through art, the ecstatic qualities, which he describes in some of his writings. That must have been quite a an effort to confront that side of Gould, which I think doesn't get as much attention, and also to distill some of those utterances into uh, into dramatic form. Uh, yes, <laughs> that was challenging. There's so much. And there's a lot on the cutting room computer digital floor. There were works that I collaborated with, collaborated on with Brian that were really interesting, but we only had a finite period of time. I mean, a piece could be hours long, days, weeks, months long about Mr. Gould, but this piece is around an hour. And so it was about choosing, figuring out what, what might tell the best story for this particular meditation and this particular young climber. What does she need to learn? And what what is their relationship? So, Right. Yeah. Well, if I may say so, this is a concept and a dramaturgical conceit that ha has tapestry opera written all over it. I mean, tapestry, Michael, your uh, your baby is a company that is entirely dedicated to new original operatic productions. It is a boundary-breaking company in almost every sense of the word, and um at what point did did um, this project get presented to you, and what was your reaction? I mean, was it the idea of confronting someone like Gould, who is both historical but still has a, a very vibrant presence in the culture? What were the, the features that, that seemed tapestry-like to you? <laughs> I... I'm so interested to for what people would say is a tapestry-like thing, um, but for me, for sure, that would mean things that um, provoke our imagination. Uh, that you know, we talk a lot about contemporary music, and most people who are classical music lovers think that contemporary music is beep boop, sort of combination of atonal and intervallic, and not necessarily emotionally satisfying music. But what I like about the word contemporary is it it has the the width and the times. So, so something that's with the times in it. Um, and so we strive to do that. And this felt like it was something that was, uh, it's kind of in our, 
it's still in our collective memory, as you were suggesting, but also the idea that our generation loves to experience things, not only to listen to them as the generation that grew up with the radio and the gramophone, but that we, we want our, uh, our theatrical experiences to push us and, and, and expose us to more things in, in many ways. So the, the elements of combining a Canadian, maybe arguably the most famous Canadian classical musician with a site-specific wall. It just was a super tasty proposition. And when it came, I think it was, honestly, I think we were at the point where we were just talking about what could the story do? And Liza and Brian had some ideas, but we were still talking about how do we, how do we put a story on a wall? And I thought, I don't think anybody else would do this, but this sounds perfect. I mean, if we're going to convince a new generation of Canadians to love classical music and art music, then it should be around things that are extraordinary. Well, that that gets us to the point at which a production needs to be brought into existence. And this is um, Philip's bailiwick. And, and Philip, when you were presented with the, the rather audacious concept that you would be directing not in linear space, but in vertical space, and uh, not just vertical space of, you know, people walking up stage or going upstairs, but actually climbing a wall as they sing and perform and, you know, express very complex dramatic concepts. Were you a little intimidated by the idea or did you find this um, kind of a, a, a trip you wanted to take? You do know that my strength is in naturalism, right? So, yes, this was not naturalistic. <laughs> so so it's, it's both, uh, 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 it's a challenge in all of its many manifestations of that word. Um, I think that personally, I have a belief in what has been called uh, continuous improvement, which for me uh, says, um, how do I keep growing as an artist regardless of age? How can I uh, try new things? How can I bring what I've learned forward into new uh, modalities? And so this is part of that. And it's... Uh, it's a complicated thing. I mean, I've done a couple of musicals before, but musicals aren't opera. Opera isn't musicals. Um, then the straight technical issues of the wall and the space are, are all things to be dealt with, right? So it's, it's a learning experience. It's, uh, it's a growth experience. In many ways, uh, I kind of feel a little bit like our climber in the show, the one who is striving to uh, gain more craft. And I feel like I'm the same way. Don't look down. Don't look down. Exactly right. Because you're working without a net. But I think I was going to say the, uh, the concept of continual improvement seems to be central to the whole concept of the, of the production. And I'm trying to visualize moving through these vertical spaces. It's very liberating. And obviously, you can look at certain analogs in theater, like Peter Pan and so on. But this is um, obviously dealing with some some rather more, I would say, in-depth concepts, especially when it comes to the struggle and the mission of the artist to, to reach the summit. I, I suppose it would be something we'd need a spoiler alert to find out whether the summit is ultimately reached. But I guess that's something that people are going to have to come in and see the, the show to experience. In terms of the non-representational aspects of this production, I mean, clearly a lot of what is being presented is metaphorical. The 
idea of the wall as a metaphor for you know the struggle to reach to reach the the peak. Did you find that kind of representation a challenge from a purely dramatic point of view, something to to really express in the sort of the the inner spiritual struggle being turned into a physical a physical ascent? I kind of go from the point of view that uh, people like what what makes us human, what makes us a person. And sometimes I feel like in a lot of productions or a lot of shows, things are overlayered and overlayered. It's a little bit like trying to run a marathon wearing, you know, three winter coats. It makes no sense to me. But I think that if we go to who are these people, how can I develop personal relationships with these people? How can they relate as human beings? And by doing that, and then the visuals and the the work and the effort for someone to be climbing the wall kind of does a lot of the meta stuff without us having to be all meta meta all the time. I, I believe in human beings tr- striving and and then letting the audience regard that, engage with that, figure out how they feel about it, and then move on. Mm-hmm. So there, I, I believe in leaving a space for the audience to fill in. It's not just circus acts, right? It's this is a tough wall. Let, let's be let's be realistic here. This is a tough wall to climb. Without a harness and stuff, nobody climbing this wall. It's right. hard and it's tricky. You got a soprano singing in a harness in the air. You don't have to be more meta than that. Right. All you have to do is have a being real. A real human being right. singing and talking to a real human being. And all of that other stuff will get laid on. And and that actually raises an issue that I, I've discussed in in some previous podcasts, which is we all love the daring big concept production, but if you don't have the ability to find the human core, uh, which is what the drama ultimately consists of, then the ability after the the effect the special visual element it becomes sort of internalized once we we get used to it if there isn't a real drama going on then the the visual overwhelms the whole purpose so i'm i'm really glad to hear that you say that you know finding the real people and showing what they're experiencing emotionally is what makes this live as a drama within the context of you know this very big meta concept. I think that's a that's such an interesting question for contemporary opera generally is like in some ways opera invented spectacle and the original theater machines and and everything um but at the same time it's not its greatest form unless the storytelling is really compelling unless it grabs us by the heart unless we see people you know that's where sometimes Cirque du Soleil is impressive the first time but it doesn't hold on to you in the same way that human story does. Exactly. And and also, if I can say, and this gets us back to Liza, it's where the issues about the dramatic quality of librettos becomes really crucial. Because I can tell you that in my journey into opera, 19th century opera, what often made the, the biggest difference to me was the quality of the libretto. If the libretto was dramatically absurd written in a language that seemed extremely stilted and and unnatural, I always had an enormous difficulty, no matter how glorious the music was 
or for that matter, how how inspiring the production was. I just couldn't get beyond the words. So now you are bringing a kind of a dramatic essence into much of the language of Glenn Gould himself. Did you feel a kind of a thematically linked arc in terms of the the pieces that you chose from his his writings? How did you how did you draw them together? Uh, well, again, there was so much to choose from, and um, I was interested in thinking about this young woman and what, again, as I said earlier, what does she need to learn? And so there's a section that's around fame, and she encounters a celebrity and at a party and these psychophantic guests as a way in which to for her to learn about. Is she striving for fame? Is she striving for art creation? Like to grapple with those questions. What is it to come in contact with uh, as, a, as a prodigy when you come in contact with the mother or the father figure? What happens when you hear an icon um, berate the audience as, you know, Gould was pretty infamous for talking about banning applause and and you know, eventually extricated himself from performing live and went into recording, right? So it was around finding the most interesting, hopefully, because there's so many, but, but some of the interesting um, journeys for this young artist, for her to eventually maybe find her own voice, to take all that information, learn what she can, and maybe go, oh, I think I'm ready to do this. And and the one thing I, I wanted to offer, as you were talking about the wall and the struggle, uh, one of the things that amazes me about the wall and then made me fall in love with Mr. Gould, like it's impossible not to when you start diving into this, this human being, this extraordinary human being, was the way in which he reveled and played in the sandbox of of precision and trying new things and figuring out a puzzle that's impossible and so the wall is not just struggle, it is joy, it's, it's um, figuring something out, it's freedom, it's bashing your head against it, it's uh, working through it, it's finding new heights, it's recognizing, oh, failure, failure's a piece of it. So the idea of it just being a wall, as in struggle, is, is something that is interesting, because if you think about Mr. Gould's various walls and joys and struggles and precision and climbs. There are so many. And uh, uh, so all that is to say that the wall is like this incredible practice and foundation, not just not to struggle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's a very internal journey, um, obviously. It's challenging oneself. It is rising to some inner goals that are that are very hard to define in the usual terms that we measure success by you know it's not about income or net worth or promotion or it's really it's really a a spiritual journey and i think that's very powerfully present in a lot of of Gould's own writing but that also raises the question of how you translate these concepts into purely musical terms. So I think we better have a word again with our composer. And I want to uh, actually dig a little bit into the, the idiom that he, that he developed for this project. So, Brian, you've got a central figure, Gould, who is very strongly associated in the public mind with one composer, particularly Bach. Your style is not Bach's. You're a contemporary composer. Gould also, though, was 
deeply, deeply engaged with 20th century music, music which was not popular during the time he came along, whether it's Schoenberg, Krennic, everything but Stravinsky, who he did not like. Um, And and, um, so how did you set about trying to find a musical language with or or evolve within your own musical language a way of of bringing the this persona and some of these concepts into reality oh that's a great question yeah we made the decision very earlier on early on not to go down the road of quoting uh bach or in the piece or putting you know audio files glenn gould playing bach or anything like that but there's definitely lots of piano in this, in fact, that there's there's five pianos in the orchestra, so that's a lot of pianos. That's a lot of pianos, yes. <laughs> but the, it is a royal conservatory, so we have pianos. So there's three actually on the scene in the scene, uh, so that you know characters can kind of walk on top of. And we have young, three young players who are part of something called the Taylor Academy at the Royal Conservatory. And these are very young players, just in their early teens, as a matter of fact. So, and and they are really prodigious. They're going around playing concertos and things. So you actually see during the piece, these young Glenn Goulds, really, one day they could easily be, well, not easily, but a lot of work, uh, but that you're seeing those. Uh, there's also uh, a piano in the orchestra, and then there's a piano that is far, far in the distance too, that plays every once in a while. So this, the sound, world is infused with a, a pianoness. So that is the way that we're invoking Gould's sound, I think, rather than having, trying to have him play or the idea of him playing Bach. There's also the idea, there's lots of scales, right? Because when you walk through the Royal Conservatory, everyone's trying to master their craft. And the way you do that is by doing hours of scale. So it, it's, it's kind of bleeding out of the walls. So you hear this this effort and this 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 musicality coming through the walls and that's this is comes out of the piece sometimes there's music that has this sisyphus quality where it goes up 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 and fall and up 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 and fall and up 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 fall uh, and then that goes on throughout so the idea that what i often say is that composers are trying to say what it feels like to be alive at this time and place in history and that is why contemporary music often sounds different than what we think of classical music, because we walk around thinking classical music is what, Vienna in 1800 or Paris in 1900. Well, this piece was written in Toronto in 2019, 2020, during a pandemic. So that's going to be a very different time and place. So the music's going to sound different, but it's not scary music. There's, it's, it balances between things that really pull on your heartstrings, but also things that uh, play with the ideas that Glenn Gould really loved in in some of the non-tonal music too. So uh, it is the type of thing that sometimes you can walk away singing it, but sometimes you have to listen a couple times, and and that's and that's okay. I think that finding a balance between all those things does say what it feels like to be alive at this time and place in history. In addition to the five pianos, your scoring consists of it's a small ensembles or a small uh, chamber orchestra. Yeah, so. Uh, actually, large for contemporary chamber opera, but small for uh, you know grand operas. Uh, so, uh, so it's it's quite a sizable ensemble of of fourteen, fifteen players plus the f- the five pianos, too. 
So it's it's uh, it's it's really a big team effort. And, and if you think about all the other people involved in this, it takes an army of people, including the orchestra, to make this happen. And and we all know that our goal is really is is our, our goal as artists, really, I think, is to inspire people. And that's really what Glenn Gould did. And we're trying to bring that too to inspire a city uh, at a time when we could all use a little inspiration right now. And we are going to try and do this with by showing examples of living with courage and beauty in our daily lives. And I think that that, I hope that that will be inspiring to people. I, I love that that concept, living with courage and beauty. And I think that is a great way of describing Gould and his life quest which was definitely the road not taken for most artists, but continues for that reason to inspire people around the world. And believe me, we hear from them all the time from all over the world. Michael, I I want to, I mean, obviously we could talk a little bit about insurance issues and, you know, some of the rigging issues to get players and singers up in, in the air and, you know, what kinds of anxieties they they're they're dealing with but i think that people can imagine those and uh, obviously i'm sure safety comes first in in a conception like this but really i'd like to sort of zoom out a little bit and talk about the kind of new vistas in opera that tapestry is dedicated to and that is its mission because uh, one of the things that i've been very impressed by is tapestry doesn't seek to replace traditional opera. In fact, you work very collaboratively with our mainstream opera companies in this city, the Canadian Opera Company. And I understand now Opera Philadelphia is going to be uh, a partner with you. But the ability to do things in a nimble and also slightly more small scale way, it seems to me opens up a lot of possibilities that would be very difficult for a big traditional opera company to do. Where do you see your role as a as a company fitting into this this emerging world and and what kinds of freedoms and limitations do you do you encounter in bringing productions into existence i can i can say that one of the exciting things about the logistics of getting a soprano up on the wall was that we got to work with the original architects of the space the, the i should say the ones who built um, Kerner Hall and connected it to the old conservatory for those who know the building in Toronto. So that's been pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, this, look, this is a question that I, I stay up awake at night about, which is, you know, what kind of opera do we deserve is a, is a question. And I'm not a huge fan of the word small. I'll tell you that because where opera started was in a place where it was essentially about bringing these art forms together and about being immediate because it was so close to people. So you look at the bringing the great musicians and the great players and um, the great scenic artists or artists of the day to create something that was totally unique. I think that that's the kind of um, spirit that we want to find in anything that we do. And I'm, I'm really inspired by this city because Toronto is always one or two, number one or number two as the most diverse cities in the world. And I think that has had such a great impact on our food scene. That's had a great impact on uh, like all different kind, like on our humanity. I think collectively we start to see each other as people as opposed to as uh, the lines between what separates us. And I think that is actually where I see the most potential for opera from Tapestry's point of view or, or the kind of opera that we would want to support is how can we create something that both benefits from this incredible multicultural world that we're in here, where we do share common language and common spaces, and also 
create an art theater, an art music theater, opera, whatever you want to call it, that our generation would attend and look at as their own. In the same way that when Bach was writing, it was immediate and compelling for the people who were hearing his uh, works in church every Sunday, um, that he was composing newly for every Sunday. There's a context that made that music belong to them. And then there's a genius that made it um, universal and immortal. And I think that the truth in tapping into who we are in this city and in, at this moment in, in time is the thing that will make great works now. Um, it's not about trying to replicate what opera did because the world has changed so much. And so maybe this is why we end up doing so many different crazy things, you know, an opera at the Brickworks. Um, sometimes we're in black box spaces. Some, you know, we did a, a Jacqueline Dupre sort of biopic opera that was with Matt Heimowitz on, uh, Matt Heimowitz on cello and Marty Breckenridge as a soprano. And it was just those two telling her story. Each scenario can be different, but because I don't think that there's a formula now Rather, there's like a, a way of thinking that is we have to we have to be bold in engaging our generation with our greatest artists and not sequester them in universities and conservatories, but rather bring bold ideas to the public um, so we can capture their imagination. I have no problem with great TV and film, but it is one kind of uh, theater. And I think there's something that music and opera offers that those things don't. And so that's that's kind of where I, I love this idea when, when Brian brought it to me. I mean, it's a little bit bonkers, but we found a way to, to do it. And I should say, for those of you listening, because this isn't a bonkers, really beautiful space, there are only so many seats because it's not in an auditorium. And we've already started to sell a lot of them. If you are around, please get yourself on the list because it's not unlikely that this will sell out. Not because there's thousands of seats per Absolutely. night, but because there's hundreds of seats per night. First of all, amen to everything that you said. It's so important for an art form to continue to evolve and to become a meaningful expression of the times. Opera was, you know, many people think that it was always an elite entertainment for for wealthy people. And they miss the fact that in the 19th century, it was revolutionary entertainment in Italy during Verdi's time that had to be suppressed in many cases because it was so politically radical. We need to sort of clear our minds of the idea that opera is one thing or another thing. It's a form of drama with music. That basically says it all, but it means that it has limitless possibilities in terms of the themes it can tackle, the style that it can present in, the way it can be dramaturgically realized. And I did not mean to be diminutive in using the word small because some of the, the most fantastic works in the history of opera or classical music theater, like, for example, Stravinsky's L'Histoire de Soldat, which is not exactly an opera but has operatic elements, is for a small ensemble, going right back to the beginning with Monteverdi and Il Combattimento di Tancredi e Clorinda, you know, small ensemble, two singers and a narrator, Really, the scope and power of of the work is not defined by the size of the performing forces, but the ambition and, and the dramatic goals really set those limits. Yeah. And, and I, sorry, I didn't mean to fight back. I was honestly just being a bit playful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the thing I, the thing I like is when you're that intimate, um, sometimes like the smaller things have, actually have a bigger impact. It's like Nobody falls in love with a rock band at like a stadium concert. Everybody falls in love with a rock band in a dive bar, in a smaller venue. And it's after you're, you become sort of a loyal super fan that it's okay that it goes to the, you know, the stadium. And I think 
um, we need to remember that that's the ev- evangelical power of of music is when it's personal, when this is directly for you, when you can see the whites of people's eyes, that's when it's exciting. Absolutely. And and if I have one musical pet peeve, it's the concept that the emotional intensity of a musical statement is related to the number of decibels, which of course tends to be in the in the stadium or the you know 150 piece orchestra conception of opera or concerts. Whereas for me, the most powerful musical expressions are often those that are a whisper because they are the most intimate and they do speak with the greatest honesty. And I am sure that that in the productions that you've created, like, for example, looking at Jacqueline Dupre, those moments are very, very present. I, I hope so. I think so. I think that, that's right. That's when we hold our breath. There's a moment. I mean, opera can do this too, where we're swept away in the same way that rock and roll does. Like the wall of sound is, is, is great and important. And, you know, you talking about Verdi and you think about, you know, the chorus from Nabucco, you just want to take part and that's part of the, the feeling, but right. it's those moments of quiet, I for sure, that make us human. The Glenn Gould figure says there is knowledge and silence. And then all of a sudden, the orchestra just stops and there's this resonance and we just listen to the building for two or three seconds. And so hopefully that's channeling uh, Glenn Gould's knowledge of what you're talking about. Here, let's bring Philip back in. You, you just brought me back in about when I was about to say, I've got to go to rehearsal because talking about this is great. Uh, directing them is even better. <laughs> I did want to ask you about what the experience has been like working with these singing actors and whether you've had to help them confront some fear of flying, so to speak, you know, being up in the air and still kind of staying in character and um and getting the emotions across, despite the fact that there's really nothing beneath their feet. This is a very dramatic form of what every actor goes through every time. There's always the risk. There's always fear. I mean, this one, you know, happens to be have a, of a height component, but it, it it's the same process, right? It's how do you incrementally build the foundation by which you let artists fly? And that's the same process. Now we, you know, we've got technological uh, issues and the rigor and, you know, all of that. But you build it the same way, right? You get experience with the wall, you plot a path, you rehearse the path, they climb the path in, in the same way so that they're in the right position to do what they need to do. It used to be when I started out as a director, I'd get overwhelmed. And then I realized you could just say, oh, details. That's just a detail. And we'll figure yeah. it out. And that's what we do. Well, I have to say that I'm really looking forward to experiencing this. I think seeing it or hearing it is not the right word, experiencing it. And uh, great concepts stand or fall by the way they are realized dramaturgically. So, Philip, I, I am looking forward to seeing how you have managed to cut uh, to the, the heart of the human drama in these characters' um, ascent up the wall. Wow. Nothing like putting it all on me here. I mean, you know, is that fair? I don't think. So. <laughs> oh, you know, the 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 advantage is you get to 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 take a, a disproportionate piece of the credit when when everyone yells bravo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. On that note, I'm off to rehearsal. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you, Philip. And everyone, I hope you'll all um, get out to see Gould's Wall. 
it sounds like a, a really incredible, mind-blowing, and revelatory production. It's such a fitting tribute to Gould and his art, and the fascination that he still continues to hold in contemporary culture. And I just want to thank you all for bringing this first piece of Glenn Gould at 90 into being. It uh, hopefully will have a long life. And uh, after this initial production, as site-specific as its original inspiration, I hope it will travel far and wide. As do we. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Liza. Well, friends, that brings to a close our conversation with Brian Current, Liza Balkan, Philip Aiken, and Michael Hidetoshi Mori, the creative team behind the new contemporary opera Gould's Wall, getting its world premiere on August 4th and running through August 12th at Toronto's Royal Conservatory of Music, a production of Tapestry Opera. And I hope all of you will join us to witness this exciting event. It is bound to be a spectacle and a spectacular production. And uh, I have to say, uh, Rudrapriya, that the idea of turning the horizontal surface of the normal theater stage into a vertical plane strikes me as being just the kind of uh, unusual, extraordinary, and innovative move that Glenn Gould would probably have loved, although he probably would have kept his feet planted firmly on the ground. Brian, I'm sure that he would have enjoyed watching it at the very least. Yes, but from a safe distance. Now, I understand that you have some important messages for our friends and listeners. Right. Well, the Glenn Gould Foundation is a registered Canadian charity, and we rely on the support of arts lovers like you to continue bringing inspiring stories to life. Please consider giving by visiting our website, glengould.ca. And if you're interested in keeping up with the Gould Standard podcast and more work from the Foundation, be sure to follow us across social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Glenn Gould Foundation. And I hope you'll join us again for the next in our celebrations of Glenn Gould at 90. Uh, we have some really exciting surprises ahead for you. And in the meantime, all of your, your ears, your attentive listening, and your financial support are greatly appreciated. We'll see you again next time.